church? Raise your hand if you don't care. Raise your hand in the air, wave them around like you don't care. All right, well, we got some things to pray about this morning. Obviously, we have obviously we have the a lot of our women. We had fifty nine women go to the women's retreat, which is awesome. Um, but there's so many people praying for them. I want to take the opportunity to pray for that one dad that's out there. We don't know who it is, but he's duct taped to the wall right now because his kids have taken over the house. Um, pizza is stuck everywhere, and so I just want to pray for that guy. I don't know who it is. And also our, our uh, interns from China, if you guys were here last week, you saw, probably noticed there was a, a number, I think there's 11 or 12 Chinese interns that come here with Sarah Berthlet's ministry, Bring Me Hope. Such an awesome ministry. If you don't know what that's about, basically they come here from China for about three weeks and they get inspired and they get, then they get taught you know, skills and then they go back to China and then this summer they're going to actually have this uh, uh, like a, a camp that they run for orphans and handicapped kids in China. Isn't that cool? I don't know how God put that on Sarah's heart, but that's just the most random thing at this little church in Lamita that, that, that we're like the host of this, this thing. So I want to pray for both those things, and then we'll get into the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, we thank you for our women, both those who are at uh, the retreat coming home, and for those who, who didn't go this year. I just, pray, I just thank you for them. What a gift. Uh, of, 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 of our women at this church and in this community. And we just thank you for them. I pray that you would just just um, just pour your love into them. I pray for those who need an extra measure of encouragement in this season, that you would encourage them. I pray for those who feel stuck in, in for whatever reason, God, because it happens to all of us. I pray that you would make yourself known to them in just a, a real and close and intimate way. And that you, would, um, that you would let them know that as they feel like they're in the fire, the refiner's fire, that you're in there with them. I pray that you would do that great work, but I pray that you would, you would, you would not allow them to feel alone. And thank you for bringing the students from China. I pray that you would help us all to, to embrace that. I just thank you for Sarah Berthlet. I pray that you would just bless her right now as she's pouring out all of her gifts, all of her talents to, to really pioneer this amazing ministry. We just pray for all that you're doing, and for our time in your word this morning. In Jesus', Jesus name, amen. I got choked up when you say Jesus, or maybe I just need to swallow more. Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 3, and we'll dig right in. Um, last week, we looked at this really unique story where Jesus has this conversation with this guy, Nicodemus. And it's a super cool conversation. Um, I, one of the things that you would think, like the proverbial kind of way that some people look at Christianity is they look at it like it's this crutch, right? And, and this crutch for people who really need it. And, but for those who don't, some people are like, well, I have two legs. So good for you that you have a crutch if you need it. But I got two good legs. I don't need a crutch. And, and this story really that, that, that Jesus has this interaction that John tells us about really blows that idea out of the water. Right? Because here's this guy, Nicodemus. He's super rich, super wealthy. He has one of the only two-story houses in this, in this really rich area where he lives in Jerusalem. It says he's one of the chief rulers. That means that he, in the temple, he's one of the key like religious rulers. He has a tremendous amount of respect from his peers because later on in John, we're going to see that they're having this argument. And Nicodemus speaks into this argument, and it really his, his, his words are weighty. We, we know that he's a, he's a Pharisee, uh, and so he's, he's, 
He's, he's like, he has it all. He has a lot of the things that we would think, like, what does it look like to be successful? This guy is successful. And yet we see this story in John chapter 3 where he comes to Jesus. And it seems like he comes in the cover of the night, right? But that, and you would say, like, well, was he, like, being kind of, like, like uh, uh, fearful or, or, or that sort of thing? Or maybe he's being wise. Maybe that's one of the qualities that makes him such a great businessman. If you think about it, one of the great qualities of a, of a, of a good businessman is, is the ability to have wisdom and to use risk analysis, right? Risk analysis is really important. Like, like I, I don't know if I'm going to be all in with this Jesus guy. I want to I find out more about him before I make that big decision so it comes to him at night. And it's interesting because this interaction with Jesus, this guy who, who everybody comes to him for advice, <coughs> His job, really, in, in society, his position in society is he helps people with their problems. You guys ever know anybody who's like that? Like, they, got, they, don't, they don't really need a lot of help, it doesn't seem, but they help other people with their problems. That's Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus really, like, like stops him dead in the water because this guy comes to Jesus. It's the guy who has it all together, who, 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 who really, like, helps other people with their problems. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus goes... Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He's offended by that. Because he, he's like, what do you mean I need to be born again? I, I just needed some little information that might be helpful as I'm counseling others. You know, that might be how, where he's at. But no, 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 Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And then by way of review, Jesus ends with this story with Nicodemus in, in John 3, 14 and 15, which I want to look at. And then John gets into some, uh, some commentary that he probably didn't have this conversation with Jesus, but it's commentary that he adds into the gospel message that we're going to look at today about. He's kind of just explaining uh, what happened between Jesus and Nicodemus a little deeper and how that impacts us. And it's, it starts with John 16, which is one of the most famous uh, verses in the Bible. But let's back up just a second and review the end of what Nic Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says in John 3, 14 and 15, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now you have to know this, to be Jewish, they didn't use the word crucifixion, because that was kind of taboo. Often they would say, when they were talking about crucifixion, they would refer to it as being lifted up or being stretched out. So right away in this story, this would have been a little bit kind of uh, left a little bit of a taste in Nicodemus's mouth, like, wow. And he points him back to one of the weirdest stories, if we're honest, in the Old Testament. If you go back to Numbers 21, there's this super weird story. It's okay to say that some of the stories in the Bible are weird. It's really cool, but it's, it is really weird, right? So there's this story in Numbers 21, way back, you have Moses, right? Everyone know who Moses is? Kids, you guys heard of Moses? Moses is awesome, right? If I, can, if I didn't have a Johnny Cash t-shirt on, I'd have a Moses t-shirt on. But I, didn't, I couldn't find one of those at Target for five bucks, so this is what I got. Right? But Moses is a really cool guy, way back, long, long time ago in Jewish history. And his story is this, that Moses uh, was, was, an, was an Israelite. He was Jewish. But then if you remember, he was born in this time when, it, when, when they were killing Jewish babies. So his mom protects him. Puts him in this little like lunch basket and floats him down the river, right? And it doesn't go too far. And then because God is in control of everything, rather than go too far down the river and then not be able to fend for himself because he's just a baby, this Egyptian lady who happens to be Pharaoh's daughter 
ends up picking up Moses. So God's in control of this whole thing, but it seems like it's out of control, but it's not. You ever feel like in your life it feels like it's out of control, but it's not? Right? And that's what's going on with Moses. God's controlling it. And now she's, he, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house, in the Egyptian ruler's house, and, and, and for 40 years. And then around the time when he gets to be about 40, he starts to realize, no, I'm Jewish, and my, my people are suffering. And he starts to identify himself. He has like this identity crisis. I'm not, I'm not really Egyptian, and I'm not really Jewish. I don't know who I am. Right, but he, he he has compassion for these Jewish people, so so in the, in the, he he wants to do something to protect them. And in that story, he gets chased out of Egypt. Pharaoh wants to kill Moses, and he gets chased out of Egypt. He goes out into the wilderness for another forty years, and he starts his life over. He gets married, has kids. Now he's eighty years old, right? And he's already settled in. And then this burning bush happens. And God speaks to him out of this burning bush and says, go back to Egypt, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. Right? So lots of cool, kind of weird uh, Jewish history stuff there. Now, we know that Moses does lead them out of Egypt. The Red Sea opens. They walk through the Red Sea, and then it closes up on the Egyptians. All these cool things happen to where if those happened in your life, you would say, obviously, God is real. Right? I mean, just too much has happened. And yet, yet the Israelites are like us, even though God is so faithful, they get to these seasons in their life where it gets really hard, and they start to complain. Now they're wandering through the wilderness for 40, another 40 years, and they're complaining about God. They're saying things like, why did you take us out of Egypt just to bring us out here and let us die? Right? They're total drama queens. And, and he's, they're like, we don't have any food, which is a lie, because they have manna, right, from heaven. We don't have any water, which is a lie, because God keeps giving them water when they need it, just not whenever they want, right? He's, he's giving them what they need, not what they want. And they're being total drama queens. And, and, they're, and they're really, they're sinning against God by being ungrateful. And yet, they don't see that. They're in this position that we can often get in where we're entitled. When you're entitled, you think you deserve more, right? You think you deserve more. And they're in this entitlement thing. And when you're, when you're entitled and you don't get what you want, you blame God as if God is the one that's sinning. He's doing wrong, right? That's where they're at. So they've got this backwards. They're sinning, and yet they're blaming God for sinning. And so here's when the story gets super weird. They're walking through the wilderness, all of them. And all of a sudden, these snakes come out of nowhere, right? And he calls them fiery serpents. And it starts biting them, right? Imagine if snakes came in here and they're biting everybody. It would get weird fast, right? And then they realize, it says, they realize, oh wait, we sinned, right? It flips over. No, God isn't the sinner, we're the sinner, and now we're being punished with these, with these snakes, right? And the snakes start biting them. Right away they go to Moses, who's their leader, and they say, pray to God that you would take these snakes away, right? But God doesn't do that. He goes, I'll give you the remedy, Moses. He goes, take a big pole, right? Imagine this real big pole. And put a fire, like an image of a fiery serpent on it. And hold it up in the air. And whenever the people look at the fiery serpent on the pole, they won't die, but they'll live. So tell the people that. And so when the people look up at the fiery serpent, right, they're, they're, they're healed. They're, they're not dying. Right? And that's the story. And it's super weird. And you read through Numbers 21, you're like, that's a weird story. Why is that in the Bible? And then all the way forward into John chapter 3, Jesus brings up that weird story 
And he brings it up in context, and then we can understand. Here's the, here's the meaning of it. And these are in your notes if you want to fill them in. The first thing is this. Snakes in the Bible always represent sin. Remember, in the, in the Garden of Eden, who came up to Eve to tempt her? Right? It was a serpent. It was a snake. In the Bible, snakes always represent sin. So when the snakes came up and bit them, it was representing that they're the sinners. And they, it worked because they realized what? Oh yeah, we sinned. As soon as the snakes were biting them, they realized they'd been bitten. They're sinners. And then they cried out to God. Now snakes always represent sin, but the, the, the analogy that Jesus wants you to realize is this. Do you realize you've been bitten? See, for the Israelites, they had already, they were already in a place where the biggest problem was their sin. But they didn't realize that. It wasn't until they realized they'd been bitten, because they actually had been bitten, that they realized they'd been sinners. And so do you realize you've been bitten? Is part of this story, this gospel story that Jesus brings up. And then the second thing, thing is this. Why does, God, why does God tell Moses to take this pole and put a fiery serpent on that? Isn't that weird? It's because the sin always rep, our snakes always represent sin. Jesus will be lifted up. Jesus became what? He became sin on the cross. He absorbed our sin on the cross. That's why it's a fiery serpent that goes up on the pole. Because Jesus needed to be put on the cross as sin. The word in, in, in the New Testament, they call this propitiation. It's a big word. It means all of our sin was put onto Jesus on the cross. It was absorbed onto Jesus, propitiated, transferred onto him. There's this idea of propitiation, right? So the snake represents sin. Jesus became sin on the cross. Jesus died for us. And then what does Moses tell, or what does God tell Moses? He says, if they look to Jesus on the cross, they'll live. That's this crazy, this is weird story, right? If we, if we look to Jesus on the cross for salvation, then we'll live. Amen. That's the story of, of, of this Old Testament that Jesus brings up to Nicodemus. I'm not sure if Nicodemus even put all the pieces together, but Jesus tells the story. And now there's all of these kind of odd things that we see in John 3, 1 through 5. There's all these weird analogies that even Nicodemus doesn't understand. So then, so then John says, let me explain it in real simple terms. Aren't you glad that John takes the time to explain? Sometimes things are weird in the Bible, and it's nice when somebody just explains them simply, right? So let's get a little more simple in this. If we look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we'll be saved. That's what he was supposed to understand. And now we'll get into today's text, which is John 3, 16 through 18. We'll start, okay? In John 3, 16, we probably all have this memorized. It's this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, right? Whoever looks at, the, at, the, at, at Jesus lifted up is not condemned. That's the idea. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Right? So there's a lot in there, right? 
But we have to see this to start to pick apart this verse. The thing that we need to see is the key theme in this section is God's love. God's love is the hero of this section. We see peace, we see condemnation, we see, we see God, we see the world, what is that? But the key theme is God's love. When, when, when in Greek, when he says God so, that word so is just two letters, right? But that word God so loved the world, it means what I'm about to tell you is the, is the motivation for Jesus' action. The word so here means this is the reason why Jesus did what Jesus did. And what was that reason? Love. It was love. God's love is highlighted here. In letter A in your notes is this. We see from this text that it is a deep and costly love. It is a deep and costly love, God's love. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Now there's another weird story in Genesis uh, where Abraham was this important, another important guy. Kids, have you ever heard of Abraham? Right? Father Abraham. What did he have? Many sons. And many sons have Father Abraham. And we are one of them. And so are you. Point to your neighbor. So let's just praise the Lord. Right hand, right? You guys done that one? We won't go through the whole thing because you guys get it. But this is Abraham, right? Way back in the Old Testament, even before Moses was Abraham. And God makes a promise to this guy, Abraham, that he's going to that he's gonna give him a son. And that through his son and through his offspring, he's going to bless the, all the nations. And Jesus ends up being the fulfillment of that. But in order for Abraham to, to, to for this promise to come true, Abraham knows that he's going to need to have a son. Now he's real old. He's like 85 when God makes this promise. And then all this time goes by. 15 years goes by. Now he's 100 years old. And, he's, and, and if you're, it's like, it's, it's, it's like the biological clock is more than just ticking, right? It needs new batteries, right? It needs a miracle. And this miracle happens and he has a baby. He has a son. His name is Isaac. And then he loves his son Isaac. And he, all the way a long time, he becomes a, a, a latest teenage years. Not when he's a kid. And then God challenges Abraham when his, when his Isaac, his, his promised child, is like in a late teenage years. They've been through a lot together. All these hopes and dreams, right? And these promises. And God says, take Isaac up on a mountain and sacrifice him. What? I can't even conceive of God saying that. And yet Abraham just trusts God. And he takes him up and he doesn't understand. How could you? If you can understand that there's something wrong with you. Like you need, you need some psychological help if you can understand why God would do that. I don't know. He takes him up on this mountain. And he's about to sacrifice him. And then God stops him. And he provides another sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. That's the story. And he just leaves it in this tension like when Genesis where it's another one of these weird stories. And they're all going to find their fulfillment in Jesus. So now we have John 3, 16. God so loved the world. He took his only son. Because he loved us. And he sent him. And he didn't, he didn't stop his hand from, that, from then. Right? He didn't stop his own hand. He offered his son as that sacrifice. What deep and costly love is that? That's what John wants us to sit in for a second. John 3.16 is more than just, you know, a sign that someone's going to hold up at the Super Bowl today. 
It's this amazing description of God's immense, costly love for us. So there's this deep, costly love. In 1 John, which is another letter that John wrote, in 1 John 4.10 it says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see that connection? He became the propitiation. He became that serpent that was on the pole where all of our sin was absorbed to Him. He became that because He loved us. It's an amazing, deep, costly love. But it gets even deeper. How many of you guys have ever loved somebody? Right? It's easy to love certain people, right? It's very hard to love other types of people, right? I mean, if you haven't experienced that, you probably have been like on an island with no people. Some people are hard to love. Can we just be on the same page there? Some people are hard to love. It's okay. It's like a, a support group, right? Some people are hard to love. I get it. This type of love that God has, this deep and costly love, is a love for rebels. Rebellious people. And not like rebels, like, like you know, some girls like, like rebellious guys, like they like the bad boys. It's not that type of love. People, it's talking about God loves people who are rebellious against Him. God loves people who hate Him. God loves people who reject Him. God loves the world. Now, in Greek, the word world is cosmos. You guys have heard cosmos, right? We spell it with a C. Greek people spell it with a K. You can never figure those guys out, right? But cosmos has three meanings in the Bible. Cosmos, the world, cosmos has three meanings in the Bible. Sometimes when it's talking about cosmos in the Bible, it's talking about the physical earth. It's talking about the mountains and the ocean. And the seeds, and the butterflies, and the trees, and all of those things that we call nature, right? The, the, the physical earth. Cosmos. Sometimes when the Bible's talking about this word cosmos, it's talking about the universal systems, the collective systems that are opposed to God. Right? You have, uh, in 1 Peter, he talks about there's spiritual realms. Like there's, there's opposition, there's an enemy to God, the spiritual realm. Within ourselves, we have our flesh. Our flesh is naturally opposed to God. Our sinful nature is opposed to God. That's part of this world system. If you don't know that, then, then, then have one of our like two-year-olds and bring them in here and then have them just follow your directions all day. No, they have their own ideas of what they want to do sometimes. Right? Because we all have that, right? And, and so there's this collective system. Some of it's like political. Some of it's, it's all these systems in the world that are in opposition to God. Have you guys ever read the news and noticed that there's some, some, some an organized system like that? Right? It's, and it's called the world. That's when, when, when the Bible says, do not love the world and the things in this world, right? It says that sometimes. And that's weird because like, okay, God, God so loved the world, but then he says us not to? No, because it's talking about two different facets of this word cosmos, right? It's this physical system that, that's opposed to God. And there's one more. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word cosmos, it means collectively all the people who are created in God's image. It means all of the people who are created in God's image. 
That's why in Proverbs 14 it says that if you if you neglect the poor or if you're if you're mean to the poor or if you look down on the poor, God is offended by that. His, the maker of those people are offended by the way that you treat other people. Why? Because they're created in his image and he cares about them. That's the idea of this cosmos. It's all of the people. Now here's the crazy thing. In, the Jews would have always thought, the, people, the Israelites thought, God loves Israel. God loves his people. And what John 3 is saying is that God loves all the people that he's created. This, this is why racism is always wrong. Because God loves everybody. This is why bashing somebody for whatever reason, hating somebody for whatever reason, is always wrong. Why? Because God created everyone in His image. They just naturally deserve our dignity and our love. That's the idea of this, this world. God loves the world. God loved, it says that Jesus came to this earth and many in this earth hated Him. And this is saying God loved those people. God loves the world. He loves the rebellious world that doesn't love him. That's a deep love, a deep, costly love for these people who, who didn't love him. Now, when, you, when you're trying to figure out this tension between, okay, God loves the world, and then he tells us not to love this world, uh, uh, D.A. Carson says, uh, has a quote that I think kind of helps us kind of differentiate between these two types of world. He says, Christians are not to love the world with selfish the selfish love of participation. When it says do not love the world, it means don't love the world with the selfish participation, right? Like, I want, I want what the world can give me. You might think of it like this. Jesus was friends with sinners, right? But Jesus didn't sin with sinners, right? Jesus was friends with sinners, but Jesus didn't sin with sinners. Jesus loved the sinners, but he didn't love what they were doing. He wanted to see them move away from that, right? And so we can love people without loving everything and participating in everything that they do. And it says, God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. That's what he's talking about in John 3.16. In Romans 5.8, it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Think about in your life. If you, if you looked at your timeline, the worst season of your life. The time when you were just acting foolishly. The time when you were not walking with God. When you were in rebellion against God. It was in that moment, your darkest moment, that Jesus was willing to come to this earth and die on a cross for your sins because he loved you. That's deep. That's what John 3.16 is all about. He is this love for the rebel. And that's us when we were yet sinners. Love for the sinner. Does God love sinners? Yes, God loves sinners. That's what some people want to say, like, no, wait, that statement's wrong. I don't know. I just I want to just believe what the Bible says. Right? Not what some guy says on Facebook. And then it says this in, in number C is it's a love for the condemned. A love for the condemned. Now, you notice that he, he, he talks about his love and he talks about condemnation. In John 3, 17, it says, God didn't love to condemn the world, 
But he came to save those who were in the world. And then it says, those who believe, those who believe are no longer condemned. Now that's the picture back to this fiery serpent on the pole. Those who look to the fiery serpent on the pole, which is Jesus propitiating our sin. Those who look to Jesus for salvation, they're no longer condemned. But for those who don't believe, Jesus didn't have to come to condemn them because he says they're already condemned. The word is krino. The Greek word here, condemned, is krino. It could also be translated judged. You know, we hear sometimes, don't judge. Well, there's two different types of krino in the, in the New Testament. Krino is used two different ways. It's used a negative way, and it's used a positive way. And this word condemnation is krino, it's judged. It says God didn't come to judge, but to save. Because those who believe are not judged. And those who don't believe, they're already judged, they're already crino. Okay? So the two different types of crino in the Bible are this. Number one is this. The, the negative side of crino or judging or condemnation is this. It's judging the inside of a person from the outside. This is the type where, where, where this, this, these groups, they call themselves Christian, and they go to a high school, and they start picketing the high school, and they're, 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 they're like as if they're the judge. That's the negative crino. That shouldn't happen. No Christian should do that. That is a very unchristlike uh, display, right? That is a negative side of crino. But there is another side of crino. There's another side of judging. It's a deep, honest love with the person's best interest at heart, right? When 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 you're a parent, when you're a parent and your child does something they're not supposed to do. Right? And you say, Ooh, I caught you doing that. You know you weren't supposed to do that. Are they allowed to go, Don't judge me, Dad. Judging is wrong. No. I'm just saying that what you did was wrong, and I'm calling you out on it because I love you, and I want to help you with future good behavior. That is a positive, that's a fatherly love. That's a fatherly crino. That is the kind of love and condom, or, 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 or judgment that God has for us. And in the context of John chapter 3, this crino, this condemned, it means they're already judged and found guilty. If you look at this, this, this text in John 3, 16, it's very court-like language. It's like you're in a court. He says, you're condemned, you're judged. Later he's going to say, here's the, condom, here's, the, here's, the, here's the judgment, here's the verdict. Right? Is that court-like language? Here's the verdict. This is the idea. God knows everything about you. And and you you're already you are you're already you're already guilty. You're found guilty. See, some people have this view of God that maybe if I turn things around in my life and for the rest of my life I do more good things than bad things, then I'll then I can turn I can turn things around. What God is saying here is that that is not going to happen. That's not the answer to your issue. The answer to being bitten by the snake is not to get snake ointment. It's not even to get what they asked. They said, take away the snakes. It won't work. The snakes aren't the problem. You have to look to the one who went on the pole. And, that, and believe that that is the answer. It's the only solution. When he says, he says, that you are already condemned. You're, 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 you're guilty. What he's in essence he's saying is the judge who's worthy to judge loves 
those who are guilty. He loves those who are, are found guilty so much that he wasn't willing to put them to death. But he was willing to take their punishment upon his son and let them go free. That is the amazing story that we find in John chapter 3 that says love for the condemned. This has always been God's heart. In Ezekiel, 600 years before Jesus comes, Ezekiel 18, 23, it says, God is speaking, he goes, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Some would say they think yes. God's saying no. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't want, I don't, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. That's God's heart, that we would turn from our way and live. So here's our thought. Here's the application. God loves those who hate him. God loves the people that we know who don't love God. Anyone know anybody like that? You don't love God. They're gone. They're, they're far off. They're, they're in the distant. God loves them. And he gave us, his followers, the mission of telling them that God loves them. That's what he, we're good newsers, right? That's good news. Our job, we're good newsers, right? We're the, you ever seen that play, Newsies? We're the Newsies. We're the good Newsies, right? Let's break out into dance. No, let's go tell people God loves you. That's our mission. And our response matters. We'll have the worship team come back up. Our response matters is the last piece of this text. In John 3, 19 through 21, it says, And this is the judgment. Now, this judgment is not krino. This judgment is krisis. The Greek word is krisis. It means verdict. Right? Imagine we're in a courtroom. Right? And the judge has made a verdict. He said, this is true. This is the way it is. I'm just speaking it like it is. Anyone ever have somebody that you just said, just tell me like it is, right? If you have friends that are always telling you what you want to hear, sometimes they're dangerous, right? Sometimes we need someone who's going to be honest with us and tell us, and that's basically what this is saying. Look, and this is the verdict. I'm going to speak the truth to you, God says. I'll tell you like it is. The light has come into the world. That's Jesus has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. People love their own worldliness rather than Jesus. Is that the, is that, have you ever noticed that? It's still the case today. People love the darkness rather than Jesus because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now let's pick this apart and give it some application. The first thing we see here is, is a question. We're supposed to look at this and go, why do some people reject God's love? You ever notice that? I mean, when you're on the side of being a Christian and you have this good news, you would think you're going to go tell people and they're going to be like, yeah, thank you for telling me. But that's not always the reaction people have, right? Or maybe you do. If you do, then I want to read your book. Because that's not always the reaction I get. Sometimes you tell people about God's love and they like reject it. Why? Why do people reject God's love when he, all he's trying to do is love you? And, they, and they, they reject him. They hate him for it. Why? 
And they hate the messenger. Right? You're like, don't shoot the messenger. They, they do. They literally hate the messenger. God said it would be like that. He says, you gotta, you, you're going to have trouble in this world. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Why? Why is that true? John tells us. He says, trusting in your own works won't work. We want to be able to handle it ourselves. But trusting in your own works won't work. And when you tell people that, when you say, you trusting in your own works, it's not going to work, they're offended by that. You don't know me. Why, why are you judging me? I'm not. The verdict is already out. I'm just letting you know what the judge said. Right? Don't, the, the, the judge is already, the verdict is already out. I'm not judging you. I'm telling you what the judge said. I'm telling you what the verdict is. That's the difference. Some of us, we do judge people, and that's wrong. But when you're just giving people good news and letting them know the way that it is with, with, the, with the final judge who does have the authority to say that, right? But people want to trust in their own works. Listen, if I was out in the wilderness and all these snakes came out and one of them bit me, I would be screaming like a girl. You'd probably invite me to the women's retreat, not going to lie to you. I would be screaming like a girl, one. I would be looking, I'm a paramedic, so I would be looking for a remedy, right? I wouldn't be going to Moses, right? Who, who's Moses, right? Does he, have his, does he have his MD? No, right? I wouldn't be looking to Moses. My first inclination might, probably wouldn't have been prayer. I prayed so many times and I didn't get what I wanted. I'll do that later. I mean, this is an emergency, right? Am I not, is this not the human reaction, right? And the last thing I would do, if you told me, take your eyes off the ground and look at some pole, the last thing I would do is take my eyes off of the snakes that might bite me again. The last thing I would do is take my eyes off of the enemy and look somewhere else. And that's what he's telling you to do. He's saying, take your eyes off your circumstances. Take your eyes off of trying to fix yourself. And trust God that God's already done everything that needs to be done. Look to Jesus and live. It's a wild story. It's a crazy story. It's a true story. It's our, it's our story. And lastly, trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. God loves you. He made a way. And there's only one way. And it's take your eyes off of everything and trust this Jesus who came from heaven to earth was put on a pole, was put on a cross, was lifted up, and look to that, what Jesus did. That is the way to be reconciled to God and find life. Let's worship. Jesus, you are holy.